0: Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, where we're in the midst of this study on the law of God, and we see here the place of God's law and its usefulness. It's interesting as Paul has been unfolding his arguments to talk about the glories of the gospel and the glories of salvation by grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the grace of the God that comes that sets us free and that we're alive in Christ and we're no longer slaves to unrighteousness, but now we're slaves to righteousness. He takes this excursion in chapter 7 and he answers a thought that would be on the Jew's mind then, which is, what's the use of the law? This all sets up before we get to the glories of chapter 8. When we get to chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before we get to the glories of chapter 8 and all that comes and the riches of God's grace to his people, we have to answer the question that would be on every Jew's mind, So what about the law? What about this law that was given to us? Why didn't God just come right out of the gate and give us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? Why did we, the Jews, sit under the law from Moses until the coming of Christ and have to live under that burden? Are you, Paul, making yourself greater than Moses? Is your message condemning Moses? And are you discrediting all of our traditions, all of our backgrounds? Paul takes a stop for a moment, and that's Romans chapter 7. In between the glorious grace of God found in Christ Jesus, and in between the wonderful work of the Spirit of God enabling us and strengthening us, he answers the question, what is the place of the law? To which he described, and we see the virtues of the law in Romans 7. The first that we saw in Paul's argument is that the law reigns over those who are alive. If you die, the law no longer reigns over you. Like I said, when we were in that section, you want to live freely, die, then you can live it up. Because obviously once you're dead, you can't act against the law. You are no longer under the law's jurisdiction. We noticed... At the end of chapter 6, there's a contrast. Chapter 5, or, uh, Romans 7 5, those who are of the flesh, uh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not oldness of the letter. So what Paul is saying is. The law rules over those who are dead to Christ and alive to the law. You want to be freed from the law, you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. You are then dead to the law and you are alive in Christ. Which then raises the next question. All right, if this, are you saying then there's a problem with the law, that the law itself is sin? And then Paul, from verse 7 through 12, defends the virtues of the law. Here's what he says. Since this is our section, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin Taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, Taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, Notice as he is writing this here, in these verses, he is writing to those who had a high view of the law. He brings it back in verse 1. It was what he says in Romans 7.1, Do you not know, brethren? And then he describes who he's talking to. For I am speaking to those who know the law. Speaking to Jews. Those who would have a high view of the law. Those who would see it as, again, glorious. Those who would have had the same attitude towards the law that the psalmist had that we read this morning. It is what they delight in, meditate on. Or it's what gives them hope, what gives them life. The question in then is saying, Paul, are you telling us that your gospel, you are teaching that the law is sin? Paul's going to answer that. No, not at all. In fact, the law is virtuous. The law is very virtuous. How do we know? Well, the first thing is we would have been completely ignorant of our sin unless the law came along. We were completely ignorant of anything until the law came along and pointed out our transgression and stirred up our sin. It revealed it. As he says there, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. We were living freely, able to do whatever we wished to do until God's word came and exposed our hearts. We lived freely. We lived in rebellion. We didn't know that it was rebellion. We didn't know that it was unrighteous. We lived freely until the law came and said, thou shalt not covet. At which point, everything within us was stirred up started to desire that which was we should not desire and we started to see that the very thing we shouldn't desire we were doing the very thing we were supposed to do we were not it's all because the law was given so that the first virtue that paul pointed out here is the law reveals sin humanity wouldn't have known sin we wouldn't have known our corruption if it wasn't for the law that came along and pointed it out to us leads us to then the second virtue we saw that last week here's the second virtue the second virtue is this the law is innocent of evil we see that in verse 8 but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law sin is dead it was sin that was the problem it wasn't the law I was thinking about how this works. If you were driving on a road, you know, as we normally do, we drive, uh, and uh, we drive at a pace that we believe is safe for us. And for all of us, that's probably different at different levels of which we consider safe. Some consider under the speed limit safe. Some greatly more than the speed limit safe. But as we're driving along, we're all driving along, looking at the flow of traffic, and we're all in this together, moving right along, until a sign comes up. And when that sign comes up, and we look at what we're actually doing versus that sign, at that moment we recognize, uh-oh, I'm going beyond the law. I am breaking it. Now, what happens next is what reveals our heart. See, because I see a sign out there, and I think, well, that sign gives me a number, but I will raise your number. That's a good starting point, but I see that number. There's a bigger number that we could go. There's something provoked within my own heart that when seeing the sign, I have a response. I'm either going to respond to that sign by coming under subjection to the law, or I'm going to provoke it and push against it. It's not that the sign was evil it wasn't that the law that was created was evil it's what it revealed within me that exposed my own heart condition that's what paul is saying here in verse 8 sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind i had a i didn't have a covetous desire until the law says you can't covet then all of a sudden i had these desires what were you to say that I can't do this? And what right would you have to rule over me in this way? And why can't I have that, that very thing that I want? Paul says it there, it is sin. And he describes sin as an acting agent here. Sin is provoking you. Sin is this agent is giving it a kind of life. Kind of reflecting of like Genesis 3, like the serpent coming in the garden, tempting Eve, has God really said? This kind of idea that Paul's drawing out here, sin has this life that provokes. And it uses the law, it uses the standard. And we know this, when we, whenever we see those signs, are, we are immediately provoked. Am I going to come under or am I going to push the limits? I'm testing it provoked in our hearts what's provoked in our heart it's this who has the right to master me who can tell me in the case of coveting as paul brings out here he uses the 10th commandment thou shalt not covet and he uses that he says uh you know draws out the heart who would say that i can't have my neighbor's house or i can't have his yard or i can't have the car he drives who who says i can't desire those things Sin starts provoking the heart. I will decide what's best for me. I will decide what is good. I will determine what pleases me. That's what's revealed by the law. The law reveals the heart that is in rebellion against God. It rebels against God's ways. It rebels against God's purposes. The law itself didn't create that within us. The law revealed what was already within us, that we have this particular desire. The wars within us causes us again to war against the truth. As Paul points out again in this point, it was sin who took the law and Use the law as an agent to produce more within us. The law itself wasn't the evil that was corrupting us. The law itself was only exposing our heart's condition. Theologians have described this in different ways. It could be described as old nature. It describes our nature. It describes our rebellion. It describes our, our depravity. The point being is that the law is the perfect standard of God's righteousness, and when we come up to that law, it reveals within us everything that is bent away from God. It reveals our, our corruption, our self-will. It reveals to us how we are opposed to God. And here is speaking simply of the natural man. And the natural man, when the law is revealed, is in a state of open rebellion against God and his ways. And the law reveals it. And in fact, you know, it's interesting that uh, the more God's standard is revealed, the more the human heart just pushes against it. The natural heart pushes against it and says, I don't want that ruling over me. That's the very reason why the law was given, was to show man his own rebellion against God, that he doesn't want God. He doesn't want God's ways. He doesn't want God. He, would, he doesn't mind the, the blessings that God gives, but he doesn't want the rule of God over his life, evidenced by the fact of man's own rebellion that is stirred up by the law. You notice at the end of verse 8 there, he says, For apart from the law, sin is dead. I didn't think I had any problem until the law came and pointed out the problem. I didn't have any struggle until the law came and said this was the struggle. I was thinking about that in my own life. I remember back in college, I had to take an art class. Um, don't get any opinions about me. It wasn't like I was sophisticated and I picked that class. It was general education. I had to do it. And we went to the Getty Museum there in L.A., and uh, you know a marvelous museum, in so many ways, but I can tell you, that morning when I woke up, I did not have a single desire to touch anything. I'll keep my hands to myself. I was fine. I entered into a few of those rooms when I started to see some Picassos, I started to see some Rembrandt, and I'm starting to think, you know what, I wonder, when I saw the sign under it that says, do not touch, I started to think, what does old oil feel like? I didn't have the desire in the morning, but I certainly had the desire when I was in each one of those rooms. And then you see some carvings and you start to see some things from the early Roman periods. And I'm like, I could touch a rock that Jesus probably saw. You know, look how close I could possibly get. It didn't come up until I saw the sign that says, do not touch. Sin became alive. It's the same kind of idea here. Well, if there wasn't the standard, there wasn't a provoking within, but now that there is a standard, there is all of a sudden this provoking. This oil painting, which had nothing, again, no, no desire to touch that morning is now alive and tempted as I am working room to room wondering, are, are, are the cameras really on everything This is the work of the law. And again, this, that's a natural illustration from an earthly you know, custom. We're speaking against that, using that principle from the moral law, when God's revealed law, but the principle is still the same. When somebody gives a standard, it's measly, immediately within us wondering, does that really apply to me? Is there a way I can get outside of that? It's the way I can get around that. It's the way I can ignore that. It's the way I can change that law so that I can operate in a different way. That's what's stirred up by sin. That law does not really apply. What we see is the law, again, reveals the law itself is innocent. The law didn't create the sin. Just like the speed limit sign didn't make me a speeder, I did it. I pushed on the pedal, I saw the road in front of me, I took the advantage. It wasn't the law that made it sinful, it was me. So the law is innocent. Third virtue is this, the law shows sin's rule. We see that in verse 9. I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. You know, I, I once lived in this freedom. I once lived in this blissful ignorance. And then the law came, and all of a sudden, my world shrank down. Again, using the illustration of speeding, sorry to burden your conscience, but I'm burdening mine. I have to preach it twice, and so now my conscience is burdened. But the reality is this. I was free to drive until I saw the sign, and now I am limited. I was thinking about this, this whole idea and especially the older you get the more you become aware of this that laws keep changing and adding and new laws and uh, keep being added and uh and we think back to the way we used to live i think you know i was thinking about car seats for example you buckle in your kids you know i had six kids and have to buckle them all in and moving around to each one and buckling them in i remember many times going through all that whole you know uh, maze of buckling every kid in and making sure everyone's locked down tight that I was like, man, couldn't, wouldn't it be great to be back in the 80s when they didn't even care if you had a seatbelt or not, you know? And some of you are getting older. We're like, yeah, we used to ride on top of the car. It was so free back then, you know? But, you know, it was that kind of deal that, that the longer we've gone on, more laws have come. There's more restrictions. I mean, to, today, if you're not putting your kid in a five-point seat harness, have you really, con- you know, considered their safety? I mean, there is a—laws have added— I used to live freely but the law came and restricted my life i think about the same thing uh, whenever a new gun law comes out usually an article comes out remember when we were kids we used to shoot rifles in high school you know now we can't even you know talk about a gun at school for the law we lived freely when the law came as he says, I once was alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden the sin became alive. I used to be free. I used to do whatever I wished. I used to be no burden at all. And then the law came, and now my life shrunk down. And the burden became real, and the spiritual battle became real, and the temptation became real, because now I know. This here, Paul, speaking of the commandments of God, it speaks of the God giving his moral law that made us all aware. I mean, it's aware of our guilt, aware of our sin. He limited our life and we recognize all the ways that we sinned against God because the commandment revealed it to us. So we struggle. So this was the work of the law. The work of the law is to show sin's rule within us. We wouldn't have been aware of it. I wouldn't have been aware of my own limitations, my own weaknesses, until the law came and said otherwise, and I then warred against it. Then I know the battle. Fourth virtue of the law is this. It's seen there in verses 10 and 11. That the law establishes guilt. The law establishes guilt. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. It made me guilty. What what should have proved to be life, what should have proved to be a way of righteousness to gain eternal life, actually was a way that revealed guilt. This was, by the way, the view of the law. When God had given it to Moses, my people kept this, they will live. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. I just want to show you this is how Jesus used the law. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. A lawyer came to Jesus and tested Jesus. And this lawyer, when he came and he tested Jesus, he wanted to expose in Jesus something, an error, try to discredit him in some way. Luke 10, 25 says this, The lawyer stood up and put him, put Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, think about this. this. I mean, this is the greatest gospel opportunity right here. What must I do to gain eternity? To which Jesus responded to him in verse 26, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? Basically, he says, okay, you're a lawyer, you're a lawyer, you understand the Mosaic Law, you understand the Old Testament traditions. How do you understand the teaching of God's Word? To which he answered verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Now, notice this phrase. Do this and you will live. What's he saying? Obey the law perfectly. Keep it. Love God with a whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Keep it. And the promise is you will live. Of course, the Jewish response in verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said, well, who is my neighbor? Meaning, well, How do I really apply this? I mean, who do I really have to apply this particular truth to? The point I just wanted you to see here is this is Jesus using the law lawfully. He is demonstrating the promise. If you kept the law, there's life. That was the promise. Turn back to Romans chapter 7. Here's the problem. This commandment Romans chapter 7 and verse 10 this commandment which was to result in life actually proved to result in death for me the very thing that should have led me to eternal life the very thing that should have brought me along actually exposed within me guilt exposed death actually exposed me to be something evil Exposed my own sin. Exposed within me a rebellious heart. It Exposed within me this opposition to the way of God. It exposed an unrighteousness, a lack of love for God, and a lack of love for my neighbor. It actually exposed a deep-rooted selfishness, unrighteousness, and ungodliness. It's the law that actually established guilt. It showed that we were guilty. The very thing that was supposed to produce life actually Revealed that we were guilty, it deceived, sin deceived us, and we died. This leads to the last virtue of the law. And you're like, Pastor, this is going really fast. We're going to be out of here quick. Well, don't worry, I'll hold you a little longer. Notice, notice verse 12, the last virtue of the law is this, the law is holy. The law is holy. Therefore he says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is righteous. It is innocent of any evil. It is good. It is upright. The law itself is basically, it's without faults. That's what Paul is saying here. I know many don't, Express that. We don't certainly like that truth, especially if we speak of our own human laws, but we're speaking of divine laws here. And divine law, the moral law of God revealed, it is holy, righteous, good. It is there to reveal the righteous standard of God, it is there to reveal holiness, it is there to reveal what is good. In fact, it is an expression of of how to love God and love your neighbor. So it is virtuous. It is innocent of all evil. No one can say, and we can't say that the law is sin, but the law is the problem. It's actually what the law per reveals within us that's the problem. And it's the, our own tendency to corruption that rebels against the law that's the problem. The question would then be, how do we use the law? What is the proper use of the law? Well, that's what Paul answers from verses 13 through 25. He answers the, the use of the law. And what he's going to demonstrate in chapters 7, 13 through 25, is the natural man's inability to use the law. The natural man's inability to use the law. We'll begin to look at that next week. And we have to get through that chapter, the rest of those verses, so we can get to chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To get to the joys of the grace of God richly poured out upon us, we have to go up to the law, have our sin exposed, to which then we can turn in Christ and see the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, I just want to make one observation for the rest of my time. You can check out, that was the sermon. The rest of you who are now curious about what is Paul teaching here, particularly in verses 14 through 25, which I know many of you are already thinking about because you are going to your home groups and you're asking questions and you're wondering what is the pastor teaching here, is the question that comes up is this In Romans 7, 14 through 25, is Paul a believer? Or an unbeliever? Is this a description of the believer's life? I do not do the things I want to do, and I do the very things I hate. Is that a description of Paul as a mature believer uh, struggling with the battle against sin? Or is this a description of an unbeliever? Well, I'll answer that next week. But I want to make an observation for you just to kind of get the wheels turning so you're thinking and we are working to this text. And I want to go back to verse 7 through 25, seven through 12 here because Paul brings out a, some details. And again, this is some observations, just put it that way. It's all free. Notice the number of times in verse 7 through 12 that Paul uses the first person, I. Eight times, I and me, he uses. Back in verse 7, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin. For I would not have known about coveting. Verse 8, it produced in me coveting of every kind. Verse 9, and I was once alive. And at the end of verse 9, and I died. And in verse 10, at the end, proved a result in death for me. Verse 11, it deceived me, and through it killed me. Eight times, I, me. Paul's referring to this, would appear to be himself that's the question is paul speaking of himself when he uses i and me eight times in that passage and then of course if you've been around the church for any amount of time you're like okay mr literal historical grammatical let's see you're going to take this literally is this literally paul here Ha! i got you trapped you have to take my view now he's a believer well wait a second just let me point out some details for you in this I would take it as I being Paul if our context demanded that. But our context here doesn't demand that. Let me just show you this. Paul, in this particular passage, this is now the second time in the book of Romans, that Paul is using a literary style to argue a point. And the style that he is using is that he is putting himself into a group of people And he is arguing as himself among that group. By the way, this was recently done by a politician. If you were up in Pennsylvania and you were listening to Dr. Oz, Dr. Oz used this style of articulating and arguing for a position Dr. Oz is in a little bit of a firestorm right now because he went into a grocery store and he started to complain about the high cost of some grocery item. I mean, it's nothing I would buy, but it was some kind of vegetable thing. And it was like $20 now. And he he was complaining about the high cost of this $20 item. So what he was pointing out was inflation and the impact of inflation upon his constituents. And he was putting himself right in the middle of that. Problem is that if you did a little Google search on Dr. Oz, you'd recognize he's worth over $100 million, and that $20 item isn't really going to impact his budget the same way it would impact somebody on minimum wage. But nonetheless, he is putting himself in that group, and nonetheless, he is arguing as a representative of that group that this is a burden. Which I agree with his argument. Inflation would be a burden. And inflation is definitely pinching all of us. My point is this we use, in normal communication, this kind of interaction when we are engaging in debate, when we are responding to an idea. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. Series of questions. How do we know that? Well, just remember remember what this whole issue is about. The whole issue goes back to chapter six and verse fourteen, when he says in chapter six fourteen, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And then he goes on and describes what a life is under grace. It means you're free from uh free to be righteous, you're free to live in righteousness. That's his description. Well, that would raise a question if you're a Jew. If I'm not under the law, then are you saying the law is useless? absolutely not chapter seven three questions chapter one do you uh, chapter seven verse one do you not know brethren i'm speaking to those who know the law that the law has jurisdiction over a person who lives and verse seven what shall we say then is the law sin may it never be and verse 13 the next question therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me what am i pointing out here There's a series of questions that Paul is bringing up and answering. He is arguing for a point. And how is he doing it? He's using a very Jewish practice of putting himself back into a group and then arguing from that group a proper perspective. Let me prove it. I'm just setting up the idea. I'm going to prove this point to you. So you leave here at least seeing the details. But just some examples. You can see this in the writing of Isaiah. If you looked at Isaiah 63, 5 through 12, you'd see it in Isaiah's example. You can see this in Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel is praying for Israel. He's putting himself back into the group. You can see this in Ezra chapter 9, verses 15 or 5 through 15. You can even see this in secular writing. If you go back to the Qumran caves and you find the, the uh, Thanksgiving scrolls, you can see it even in the Thanksgiving scrolls of Qumran. All of this to say that this was a Jewish practice and custom to be able to take yourself and put yourself into a group and then argue from that group's position. Now, all that to say here, let me kind of prove this for you. Here in, in the details in our text in Romans 7. First thing is this we all agree with this. The English language stinks, all right? We know that. The English language is difficult. The English language is uh, so weak in regards to communicating. Uh, you know, the Greek and other languages are, are much more robust in regards to articulating uh, emphasis. Clarifying subjects and and who you want to speak to, English is very weak in this. For example, if I said to you "ran," you'd be like, "What? Give me a subject. Give me a direct object. Give me something here to give me a sentence that I can do something with your verb that you just gave." But if I was in the Greek and I was speaking to you and I said "erkomai," well, now I've given you something. In the Greek, erkomai has the subject, I. It means this, I am coming. It's Jesus' word that he uses in Revelation 2, verse 5. He says, erkomai, I am coming. And he gives it to the church and says to the church, beware what you're doing. I am coming, erkomai. But the Greek can go even further. The Greek can add a pronoun to it and he can say, I, ego, erkomai. He could say, I myself am coming. So he can be emphatic. Well, that's exactly what's happened here in Romans chapter 7. Paul becomes very emphatic. He not only gives the verb with the subject and the verb, but then he adds a pronoun to it, complementing it and even expanding and making emphasis. I myself am coming. So much better than the English. In English, when we try to give emphasis, as I said the first hour, we add emojis to it just to show the emphasis. I mean, We used to add you know, exclamation points, or put it in all caps. And then we're showing you we really mean something here when we put it in all caps. The idea is here that Paul is speaking with an emphasis, he's speaking emphatically, he is speaking in such a way as to draw your attention to something, and he's speaking with a vividness so you understand the significance of what he is articulating. why he uses the first person so many times here not just in the verb but even adding the pronoun to show an emphasis but now okay that's all set up all right that's all just to kind of prove language and how it works let me show you what he's doing right here okay here in verse 9 as I said at least three times in Romans Paul takes on this form begins to argue from a position that's not himself directly but the position of the audience that he's engaging in the first one we'll see is right here in verse 9 hopefully by showing you all three of these examples you'd be like yeah that's obvious and i prove my point but we'll see verse 9 notice this he says i once was alive apart from the law Now, I need to ask you to put your biblical hat on for a moment and ask yourself the question, when was it that Paul himself was alive before the law? He didn't exist before Moses. He didn't exist from the time of Adam until Moses, so he wasn't in that period of time where there wasn't the law. And you say, well, okay, he was born in this world, so he came to faith later. Well, yeah, let me point out to you what Paul said about his Jewish life in Philippians chapter 3, 4 through 6. Here's what he said about his Jewish life. I myself might have confidence in the flesh. Anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh? I far, far more verse 5 a circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel a tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law a Pharisee as to zeal a persecutor of the church as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless what was paul saying about his his religious life from day 8 i was circumcised and i lived under the law i was trained we know of Paul, he had the best teacher, Gamaliel. We know that he turned out to become a Pharisee, he was zealous. He clearly grew up in a, in a religious home where his parents taught him the law. So then we go back and ask this question, when was it that he was alive before the law? Are we talking about those first eight days of his life? That's one very aware infant, if that's what you're saying. I mean, like I like to say of my own kids, they're born in the foyer and we brought them into the church. You know, They've been around the church their whole life. They've been taught truth. Uh, many of you are their teachers. They are quizzed regularly. They are regularly uh, taught the truth so that they understand. There's never a sense where they have not been under the law, under the truth. Same thing is true with Paul. From his personal vantage point, he was not in this world existing outside of the law. What's he doing then? That he is going to a shared common experience and he's identifying just like all of us can identify with this idea. We know this whenever we're driving in an area where we didn't know the speed limit and all of a sudden it came and we were shocked by it. We know that common experience. That is what he says here. All right, I'm warming you up. One more. Turn over to chapter three. See this again. This one's really significant. Chapter three. This one is uh, really, really important, particularly as it relates to our context in Romans seven. Romans chapter three. What is this? Well, from chapter two verse seventeen all through the ends, Paul speaks to the Jews. Those who, call, who go by the name Jew and who rely upon God. And those who, again, who approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, verse 18. Those who, again, have confidence in their Jewish traditions and customs and backgrounds. And he basically says to them, your confidence shouldn't be in those backgrounds. Your confidence needs to be in God. It needs to be in the grace of God you're not a jew one outwardly you're a jew inwardly your heart has been changed you've been changed by the spirit of god that's what he says in verse 29 but he is a jew is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit not by the letter and his praise is not from men to which the very question would be then if I, all right i'm made this by god then are you saying my jewishness is worthless in comes Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? That's his question. The very natural question. And you must say that it's worthless. What's the advantage to which he answers? Now notice from, two, from verse 2 through verse 5. Well, uh, from verse 4. So 2 to 4. Notice he speaks third person. They. Third person plural. They. Them. Notice. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? Verse 4, or verse 3, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Let God be found true, even though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So now clearly, so far, what you've seen is this Jews are asking a question. He responds to the grace of God. He identifies this group. Now notice the change in verse 5 through 7. But if our, now this is first person plural, if our unrighteousness, demonstrates the righteousness of god what shall we say again first person plural we uh, they are possessive we is uh, again here first person plural we the god who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous is he i'm speaking in human terms may it never be for otherwise how will god judge the world now he switches gears notice how he speaks in the first person he identifies himself with this group now here's the key verse 7 this is the the big question for us but if through the law notice or through my lie the truth of god of god abounded to his glory now the question, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? By the way, the word judge there, present tense. It is now an ongoing and continuing action. What's he asking? Why am I now regularly, continually being judged as a sinner? Now, friends, let me ask you this. When is the Apostle Paul regularly under the judgment of God. He's not speaking of himself. he's identifying with this group. Apostle Paul is covered in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul has been delivered. The Apostle Paul here is taking on the argument of the Jewish belief, Jews at that time, not believers, the Jews of that time, and he is bringing out their argument, responding to their argument again. This is a rhetorical device to give emphasis. It's a rhetorical device to draw out the vividness of the, the debate. Why am I presently still being judged? That's actually present tense. It is even the same construction that we're going to see in Romans seven fourteen through 25. And we would then have to ask the question, if we think here that this is Paul himself, how is it that the apostle Paul is under judgment when he's covered in Christ? One more time, if I haven't convinced you, one more question, one more observation. Chapter 7, turn over to chapter 7, look at verse 24. Now, Since we haven't got to this verse yet, and we haven't unfolded it all, I'm not going to be able to explain every detail, but there's one I just want you to see. Notice the response. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That's the question. Now, here's the question in mind. Here is the I am statement, verse 24, wretched man that I am. And again, it's emphatic, a go, a a me. It is the emphatic, this is what I am, wretched man that I am. And then the question, who will set me free from this death? Now, did Paul forget his theology? Did Paul all of a sudden become so consumed with sin that he even forgot that Jesus Christ is his savior? And are you arguing that, Paul is a mature believer here in Romans 7-14, through and you can be so mature in in your Christian life that you regularly sin and even forget your theology that you don't even know who to call to to deliver you from sin. Is that what you're arguing? Or if Paul is taking a particular group and identifying with that particular group, A group of Jewish unbelievers who are living under the law and have no hope. Then they would cry out, who will deliver me? The question should have been for the Apostle Paul, when will I be delivered from this body of death? Because that's what we're all asking at this point. When will I be delivered from this remaining corruption of sin that I wrestle with on a regular basis? When will this happen? That's the question of a believer. The question, though, of the natural man who does not know God and does not know the way of God is, who will deliver me? How will I be saved? Well, all that's just warm up. That's just to get your mind thinking for this week, to get you prepared for then what in the world is going on from verses 13 through 25. That I will answer for you starting next week. But I'll show you this basically. What Paul is demonstrating in 13 25 It's the complete inability of the natural man to honor God in his own strength. We're hopeless. In our own strength, we have no strength. We don't have enough strength to keep the law. The law will only provoke us. In our own strength, we cannot honor God. In our own strength, we are hopeless. But Romans 8.1 But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to be in Christ. And we will show you that in the weeks to come let's go before the lord in prayer father thank you so much for this truth thank you for so much for your word and the clarity of it and we can see the precise details and knowing that the apostle paul was driven by the spirit and he was moved along to record your very word that every word is important and necessary and every detail is important so that in these details, we understand your message. And in that message, we are protected, enriched, strengthened, and encouraged. And we just pray that in our hopelessness and despair, that we would cast ourselves upon you. That your mercy and grace would lavish us, transform us. Drawing us closer to yourself and demonstrating the riches of your grace cultivate within us this appetite to be like Bereans, to know your truth and to apply it. And in those ways in which we are confused, in which we don't understand, we rely upon your spirit in those times to teach us, to illumine our minds and to help us understand. Thank you again for your grace and the beauty of your law. For indeed your law reveals righteousness. And our heart delights in righteousness. We delight in your ways. And even when we see our own natural inability, we rejoice in the grace that you've given us, that you've set us free so that we are free to keep your law, free to walk in your grace, free to yield our life to your spirit, yield to Christ Jesus ruling in us. May that ever be our thought and desire so that you would receive all glory and honor. Thank you for this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.